Welcome to Volume 5 of The Mating Season. Chapter 10 And as the days went by, these unsettled outlooks became more unsettled. Those V-shaped depressions ever via. It was on Friday that I clocked in at Deverell Hall. By the morning of Tuesday, I could no longer conceal it from myself that I was losing the old pep, and that unless the clouds changed their act, and started dishing out at an early date a considerably more substantial slab of silver lining than they were coming across with at that moment, I should soon be definitely down among the wines and spirits. It is bad to be trapped in a den of slavering ants, lashing their tails and glaring at you out of their red eyes. It is unnerving to know that in a couple of days you will be up on a platform in a village hall telling an audience, probably well provided with vegetables, that Christopher Robin goes hoppity hoppity hop. It degrades the spirit to have to answer to the name of Augustus. And there are juicier experiences than being in a position where you are constantly asking yourself if an Aunt Agatha or a Madeline Bassett won't suddenly arrive and subject you to shame and exposure. No argument about that. We can take that, I think, as red. But it is not these chunks of the great web that were removing the stiffening from the Worcester upper lip. No, the root of the trouble, the thing that was giving me dizzy spells and night sweats and making me look like the poor bit of human wreckage in the before-taking pictures and the advertisements of headaches, headache, hokies, was the sinister behaviour of Gussie Ficknoddle. Contemplating Gussie, I found my soul darkened by a nameless fear. I don't know if you've ever had your soul darkened by a nameless fear. It's a most unpleasant feeling. I used to get it when I was one of the resident toes beneath the harrow at Malvern House Bramley-on-Sea on hearing the Reverend Aubrey Upjohn conclude a series of announcements with the clerk crack he would like to see Worcester in his study after evening prayers. On the present occasion, I had felt it coming on during the conversation with Gussie, which I have just related. And in the days that followed, it had grown and grown until now I found myself what is known as a prey to the liveliest apprehension. I wonder if you spotted anything in the conversation to which I refer. Did it, I mean, strike you as significant and start you saying, What ho to yourself? It didn't. Then you missed the gist. The first day I had had merely a vague suspicion. The second day, this suspicion deepened. By nightfall on the third day, suspicion had become a certainty. The evidence was all in, and there was no getting around it. Reckless of the fact that there existed at the larches, Wimbledon Common, a girl to whom he had plighted his troth, and who would be madder than a bull pup entangled in flypaper, were she to discover that he was moving in on another, Augustus Finknoddle had fallen for Corky Bearbright like a ton of bricks. You may say, come, come, Bertram, you're imagining things, or tush, Worcester, this is but an idle fancy. But let me tell you that I wasn't the only one who'd noticed it. Five solid ants had noticed it. Well, really? Dame Daphne Winkworth had observed bitterly just before lunch, when Silversmith had blown in with the news that Gussie had once again telephoned to say he would be taking potluck at the vicarage. Mr. Worcester seems to live in Miss Peerbright's pocket. He appears to regard Deverell Hall as a hotel, which he can drop into or stay away from, as he feels inclined. 
and Aunt Charlotte, when the facts had been relayed to her through her ear trumpet, for she was wired for sound, had said with a short, quick sniff that she supposed they ought to consider themselves highly honoured, that the pie-faced young bastard condescended to sleep in the body place at all, or words to that effect. Nor could one fairly blame them for blinding or stiffing. Nothing sticks the gaff into your chattelin more than a guest being constantly AWOL, and it was only on the rarest occasions nowadays that Gussie saw fit to put on the nosebag at Deverell Hall. He lunched, teed, and dined with Corky. Since that first meeting outside the post office, he had seldom left her side. He was a human poultice, nothing less. You can readily understand, then, why there were dark circles beneath my eyes, and why I had almost permanently now a fluttering sensation in the pit of my stomach, as if I had recently swallowed far more mice than I could have wished. It only needed a word from Dame Daphne Winkworth to Aunt Agatha to the effect that her nephew, Bertram, had fallen into the toils of a most undesirable girl, a Hollywood film actress. I could see her writing it as clearly as if I had been peeping over her shoulder, to bring the old relative racing down to Deverell Hall with her foot in her hand. And then what? Ruin, desolation, and despair. The obvious procedure, of course, when the morale is being given the sleeve across the windpipe like this, is to get in touch with Jeeves and see what he has to suggest. So encountering the parlour-maid Queenie in the passage outside my room after lunch, I inquired as to his whereabouts. I say, I said, I wonder if you happen to know where Jeeves is. Worcester's man, you know? She stood staring at me goofily. Her eyes, normally like twin stars, were dull and a bit reddish around the edges, and I should have described her face as drawn. The whole set-up in short seeming to indicate that here one had a parlour-maid who had either gone off her onion or was wrestling with a secret sorrow. Sir? She said in a tortured sort of voice. I repeated my remarks, and this time they penetrated. Mr. James isn't here, sir. Mr. Worcester let him go to London. There was a lecture he wanted to be at. Oh, thanks, I said, speaking dully, for this was a blow. You don't know when he'll be back. No, sir. I see, thanks. I went on to my room and took a good square look at the situation. If you ask any of the nibs who move in diplomatic circles and are accustomed to handling tricky affairs of state, he will tell you that when matters have reached a deadlock, it is not a bit of good sitting on the seat of the pants and rolling the eyes up to heaven. You have got to turn stones and explore avenues, and take prompt steps through the proper channels. Only thus can you hope to find a formula. It has seemed to me amusing tensely that in the present crisis, something constructive might be accomplished by rounding up Corky and giving her a straight-from-the-shoulder talk pointing out the frightful jeopardy in which she was placing an old friend and dancing-class buddy by allowing Gussie to spend his time frisking and bleating round her. I left the room accordingly, and a few minutes later might have been observed stealing through the sunlit grounds en route for the village. In fact, I was observed, and by Dame Daphne Winkworth. I was nearing the bottom of the drive, and in another moment should have won through to safety, when somebody called my name, or rather Gussie's name and I saw the formidable old egg standing in the rose garden. From the fact that she had a syringe in her hand, I deduced that she was in the process of doing the local green fly a bit of no good. Come here, Augustus, she said. It was the last thing I would have done if given the choice, 
for even at the best of times, this dangerous specimen put the wind up me pretty vertically, and she was now looking about ten degrees more forbidding than usual. Her voice was cold and her eye was cold, and I didn't like the way she was toying with that syringe. It was plain that for some reason I had fallen in her estimation to approximately the level of a green fly, and her air was that of a woman who for two pins would press the trigger and let me have a fluid ounce of whatever the hell brew was squarely in the mazard. Oh, hello, I said, trying to be debonair but missing by a mile. Squirting the rose trees. Don't talk to me about squirting rose trees. Oh, no, rather not, I said. Well, I hadn't wanted to particularly. Just filling in with ad-lib stuff. Augustus, what is this I hear? I beg your pardon. You would do better to beg Madeline's. Mystic stuff, I didn't get it. The impression I received was of a dame of the British Empire talking through the back of her neck. When I was in the house just now, she proceeded. A telegram arrived for you from Madeline. It was telephoned from the post office. Sometimes they telephone and sometimes they deliver personally. I see. According to the whim of the moment. Please do not interrupt. This time it happened that the message was telephoned. And as I was passing through the hall when the bell rang, I took it down. Frightfully white of you, I said, feeling I couldn't go wrong in giving her the old oil. I had gone wrong, though. She didn't like it. She frowned and raised the syringe. Then, as if remembering in time that she was a devil, lowered it again. I had already asked you not to interrupt. I took down the message, as I say, and I have it here. No. She said, having searched through her costume. I must have left it on the hall table, but I can tell you its contents. Madeline says she has not received a single letter from you since you arrived at the hall, and she wishes to know why. She was greatly distressed at your abominable neglect and I am not surprised. You know how sensitive she is. You ought to have been writing to her every day. I have no words to express what I think of your heartless behavior. That is all, Augustus. She said and dismissed me with a gesture of loathing, as if I had been a green fly that had fallen short of even the very moderate level of decency of the average run-of-the-mill green fly. I tottered off and groped my way to a rustic bench and sank onto it. The information which she had sprung on me had, I need scarcely say, affected me like the impact behind the ear of a stocking full of wet sand. Only once in my career had I experienced an emotion equally intense. On the occasion when Freddy Widgeon at the drones, having possessed himself of a motor horn, stole up behind me as I crossed Dover Street in what is known as a reverie and suddenly tooted the apparatus in my immediate ear. It had never so much as occurred to me to suppose that Gussie was not writing daily letters to the Bassett. It was what he had come to this Edgar Allan Poe residence to do, and I had taken it for granted that he was doing it. I didn't need a diagram to show me what the run of events would be if he persisted in this policy of cacanery. A spot more silence on his part, and along would come La Bassett in person to investigate, and the thought of what would happen then froze the blood and made the toes curl. I suppose it may have been for a matter of about ten minutes that I sat there, the jaw drooping, the eyes staring sightlessly at the surrounding scenery. Then I pulled myself together and resumed my journey. It has been well said of Bertram Worcester 
that though he may sink onto rustic benches and for a while give impression of being licked to the custard, the old spirit will always come surging back sooner or later. As I walked, I was thinking hard and bitter thoughts of Corky, the Fons et Origo, if you know what I mean by Fons et Origo, of all the trouble. It was she who, by shamelessly flirting with him, by persistently giving him the flashing smile and the quick sidelong look out of the corner of the eye, had taken Gussie's mind off his job and slowed him up as I corresponded on the spot. Oh, woman, woman, I said to myself, not for the first time, feeling that the sooner the sex was suppressed, the better it would be for all of us. At the age of eight, in the old dancing class days, incensed by some incisive remarks on her part about my pimples, of which I had a notable collection at the time, I once forgot myself to the extent of socking Corky Pirbright on the top knot with a wooden dumbbell, and until this moment I had always regretted the unpleasant affair, considering my action a blot on an otherwise stainless record, and no matter what the provocation, scarcely the behaviour of a chevalier. But now, as I brooded on the Delilah stuff she was pulling, I found myself wishing I could do it again. I strode on, rehearsing in my mind some opening sentence to be employed when we should meet, and not far from the vicarage came upon her seated at the wheel of a car by the side of the road. When I confronted her and said I wanted a word with her, she said she regretted it couldn't be managed at the moment. It was, she explained, her busy afternoon. In pursuance of her policy of being the little mother to her uncle, the sainted Sidney, she was about to take a bowl of strengthening soup to one of his needy parishioners. A Mrs. Clara, well beloved, if you want to keep the record straight. She proceeded. She lives in one of those picturesque cottages on High Street, and it's no good you waiting, because after delivering the bullion, I sit and talk to her about Hollywood. She's a great fan, and it takes hours. Some other time, my lamb. Listen, Corky! You are probably saying to yourself, where's the soup? I unfortunately forgot to bring it along, and Gussie has trotted back for it. What a delightful man he is, Bertie. So kind, so helpful, always on hand to run errands when required, and with a fund of good stories about newts. I've given him my autograph. Speaking of autographs, I've heard from your cousin Thomas this morning. Never mind about young Thomas. What I want... She broke into speech again, as girls always do. I've had a great deal of experience of this tendency on the part of the female sex to refrain from listening when you talk to them, and it has always made me sympathize with those fellows who tried to charm the deaf adder and had it react like a Wednesday matinee audience. You remember I gave him fifty of my autographs, and he expected to sell them to his playmates at sixpence apiece? Well, he tells me that he got a bob, not sixpence, which will give you a rough idea of how I stand with the boys at Bramley-on-Sea. He says a genuine idol Lupino only fetches ninepence. Listen, Corky! He wants to come and spend his midterm holiday at the vicarage, and of course I've written to say that I shall be delighted. I don't think Uncle Sidney is too happy at the prospect, but it's good for a clergyman to have these trials. It makes him more spiritual and consequently hotter at his job. Listen, Corky, what I want to talk to you about is... Ah, here's Gussie. She said, once more doing the deaf adder thing. Gussie came bounding up with a look of reverent adoration on his face and a steaming can in his hands. 
Corky gave him a dazzling smile, which seemed to go through him like a red-hot bullet through a pat of butter. Oh, thank you, Gussie darling, she said. Well, goodbye, all. I must rush. She drove off, Gusty standing gaping after her transfixed, like a goldfish staring after an ant's egg. He did not, however, remain transfixed long, because I got him between the third and fourth ribs with a forceful finger, causing him to come to life with a sharp ouch. Gussie, I said, getting down to brass tacks and beating about no bushes. What's all this about you not riding a Madeline? Madeline? Yes, Madeline! Oh, Madeline. Yes, Madeline! You're all been riding to her every day! This seemed to annoy him. How on earth could I ride to her every day? What choice do I get to write letters when my time is all taken up with memorizing my lines in this crosstalk act and thinking up effective business? I haven't a moment. Well, you jolly better well find a moment. Do you realize she started sending telegrams about it? You must write today without fail. What, to Madeline? Yes, blast you, to Madeline! I was surprised to see he was glowering suddenly through his windshields. I'll be blowed if I write to Madeline, he said, and would have looked like a mule if he had not looked so like a fish. I'm teaching her a lesson. You're what? Teaching her a lesson. I'm not at all pleased with Madeline. She wanted me to come to this ghastly house, and I consented on the understanding that she would come too and give me moral support. It was a clear-cut gentleman's agreement, and at the last moment she coolly backed out on the flimsy plea that some school friend of hers at Wimbledon needed her. I was extremely annoyed, and I let her see it. She must be made to realize that she can't do that sort of thing, so I'm not writing her. It's a sort of system. I clutched at the brow. The mice in my interior had now got up an informal dance and were bucking winging all over the place like a bunch of Nijinskys. Gussie, I said, once and for all, will you or will you not go back to the house and compose an eight-page letter breathing love in every syllable? No, I won't, he said and left me flat. Baffled and despondent, I returned to the hall, and the first person I saw there was Catsmeat. He was in my room, lying on the bed, with one of my cigarettes in his mouth. There was a sort of dreamy look on his dial, as if he were thinking of Gertrude Winkworth. Chapter 11 Observing me, he switched off the dreamy look. Oh, hello, Bertie. He said. I wanted to see you. Oh, yes. I reposted quick as a flash. I made it a sting, for I was feeling a bit fed with cat's meat. I mean, of his own free will, he had taken on the job of valeting me, and in his capacity of my gentleman's personal gentleman, should have been in and out all the time, brushing here a coat, pressing there a trouser, and generally making himself useful. And I hadn't set eyes on him since the night we'd arrived. One frowns on his absenteeism. I wanted to tell you the good news. I laughed hollowly. Good news? Is there such a thing? You bet there's such a thing. Things are looking up. The sun is smiling through. 
I believe I am going to swing this Gertrude deal. Owing to the footling social conventions which prevent visiting valets hobnobbing with the daughter of the house, I haven't seen her, of course, to speak to, but I've been sending her notes by Jeeves, and she's been sending me notes by Jeeves, and in her latest she shows distinct signs of yielding to my prayers. I think about two more communications, if carefully worded, should do the trick. Don't actually buy the fish slice yet, but be prepared. My peak vanished! As I have said before, the Worcesters are fair-minded. I knew what a dickens of a sweat these love letters are. A full-time job calling for incessant concentration. If Catmeat had been tied up with a lot of correspondence of this type, he wouldn't have had much time for attending to my wardrobe. Of course, you can't press your suit and another fellow's trousers simultaneously. Well, that's fine, I said. Pleased to learn that though the general outlook was so scaly, someone was getting a break. I shall watch your future progress with considerable interest. But pigeon-holding your love life for the moment, cat's meat, a most frightful thing has happened, and I should be glad if you could come across with anything in the aid and comfort line. That criminal lunatic, Gussie. What's he been doing? It's what he's not been doing that's the trouble. You could have flattened me with a toothpick just now when I found out he hasn't written a single line to Madeline Bassett since he got here. What's more... He says he isn't going to write her. He says he's teaching her a lesson, I said, and in a few brief words placed the facts before him. He looked properly concerned. Caspeet is a kindly and feeling heart, readily moved by the spectacle of an old friend splashing about in the gumbo. And he knows how I stand with regard to Madeline Bassett, because she told him the whole story one day when they met up at the bazaar, and the subject of me happened to come up. Well, this is rather serious. He said, You bet it's serious. I'm shaking like a leaf. Girls of Madeline Bassett's type attach such importance to the daily letter. Exactly. And if it fails to arrive, they come and make inquiries on the spot. And you say Gussie was not to be moved. Not an inch. I pleaded with him, I may say passionately. But he put his ears back and refused to cooperate. Caspi pondered. I think I know what's behind all this. The trouble is that Gussie, at the moment, is slightly off his rocker. What do you mean at the moment? And why slightly? He's infatuated with Corky. Sorry to use such long words. I mean, he's got a crush on her. I know he has. So does everybody else for miles around. His crush is the favorite topic of conversation when aunt meets aunt. There has been comment in the servants' hall, too. I'm not surprised. I'll bet they're discussing the thing in Bassenstoke. You can't blame him, of course. Yes, I can! I mean, it isn't his fault, really. This is springtime, Bertie, the mating season, when, as you know, a livelier iris gleams under the burnished dove and a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. The sudden impact plumes bang in the middle of spring of a girl like Corky on a fat head like Gussie, weakened by constantly swilling orange juice, must have been terrific. Corky... When she's going nicely, bowls over the strongest. No one knows that better than you. You were making a colossal ass of yourself over her at one time. No need to rake up the dead past. I only raked it up to drive home the point, which is that she is more to be pitied than censured. She's the one that wants censuring. Why does she encourage him? I don't think she encourages him. He just adheres. She does encourage him. I've seen her doing it. 
She deliberately turns on the charm and gives him the old personality. Don't tell me that a girl like Corky, accustomed to giving Hollywood glamour men the brush of rue, couldn't put Gussie on ice if she wanted to. But she doesn't. That's what I'm beefing about! And I'll tell you why she doesn't, Bertie. I haven't actually asked her, but I'm pretty sure she's working this Gussie continually with the idea of sticking the harpoon into Esmond Haddock to show him that if he doesn't want her, there are others who do. But he does want her! She doesn't know that, unless you've told her. Well, I haven't! Why not? I wasn't sure it would be the correct procedure. You see, he dished out all that stuff about his inner feelings under the seal of the confessional, as you might say. And he said he didn't want it to go any further. This must go no further, he said. On the other hand, a wooden season might quite easily reunite a couple of sundered hearts. The whole thing is extraordinarily moot. I'd go ahead and tell her. Bung in the word in season. I'm all for reuniting sundered hearts. Me too, but I think we've left it too late. Already the bassett is burning up the wires with telegrams asking what it's all about. A hot one just arrived. I found it on the hall table when I came in. It was the telegram of a girl on the verge of becoming fed to the eye teeth. I tell you, cat's meat, I see no ray of light. I'm sunk. No, you're not. I am! When I tell Gussie about this telegram, urging upon him that now was the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party, he merely, as I said, stuck his ears back and said he was teaching the girl a lesson, and not a smell of a letter should she get from him till the lesson had been learned. The man is non-composmentum. And I repeat, I see no ray of light. Seems to me it's all quite simple. You mean you've got something to suggest? Of course I've got something to suggest. I always have something to suggest. The thing's obvious. If Gussie won't write to this girl, you must write to her yourself. But she doesn't want to hear from me. She wants to hear from Gussie. And so she will, bless her heart. Gussie has sprained his wrist so had to dictate the letter to you. But Gussie hasn't sprained his wrist. Pardon me. He gave it a nasty wrench when stopping a runaway horse, and at great personal risk, saving a little child from hideous death. A golden-haired little child, if you will allow yourself to be guided by me, with blue eyes, pink cheeks, and a lisp. I think a lisp is good box office, don't you? I gasped. I had got his drift. Cat's me, this is terrific. You'll write the thing? Of course. It'll be pie. I've been writing Gertrude that sort of letter since I was so high. He seated himself at the table, took pen and paper, and immediately became immersed in composition, as the expression is. I could see that it had been no idle boast on his part that the thing would be pie. He didn't even seem to have to stop and think. and almost no time, he was handing me the finished script and bidding me to get a jerk on and copy it out. It ought to go off at once, every moment being vital. Trot down to the post office with it yourself. Then she'll get it first thing in the morning. And now, Bertie, I must leave you. I promised to play gin rummy with Queenie, and I am already late. She wants cheering up, poor child. You've heard about her tragedy, the severing of her engagement to that flatty Dobbs? No, really. Is her engagement off? Then that's why she was looking like that, I suppose. I ran into her after lunch, and I got the impression that the heart was heavy. What went wrong? She didn't like him being an atheist, and he wouldn't stop being an atheist, and finally she said something about Jonah and the whale.
which it was impossible for her to overlook. This morning she returned the ring, his letters, and a chain ornament with a present from Blackpool on it, which he had bought her last summer while visiting relatives in the north. It hit her pretty hard, I'm afraid. She's passing through the furnace. She loves him madly and yearns to be his, but she can't take that stuff about Jonah and the whale. One can only hope that Jim Rummy will do something to ease the pain. Right ho, Bertie. Get on with that letter. It's not actually one of my best, perhaps, because I was working against time and couldn't prune and polish, but I think you'll like it. He was correct. I studied the communication carefully and was enchanted with its virtuosity. If it wasn't one of his best, his best must have been pretty good, and I was not surprised that upon receipt of a series of letters, Gertrude Winkworth was weakening. There are letters which so doubts as to whether this bit here couldn't have been rather more neatly phrased, and that bit there gingered up a trifle, and other letters of which you say to yourself, This is the goods, don't alter a word. This was one of the latter letters. He had got just right the modest touch into the passage about the runaway horse, and the lisping child was terrific. She stuck out like a sore thumb and hogged the show. As for the warmer proportions about missing Madeline every minute and wishing she were here so that he could fold her in his arms and what not, they simply couldn't have been improvised upon. I copied the thing out, stuffed it in an envelope, and took it down to the post office, and scarcely had it plopped into the box when I was hailed from behind by a musical soprano, and turning, saw Corky heaving alongside. Chapter 12 I felt profoundly bucked, the very girl I wanted to see. I grabbed her by the arm so that she couldn't do another of her sudden sneaks. Corky, I said, I want a long heart-to-heart -heart talk with you. Not about Hollywood? No, not about Hollywood. Thank God. I don't think I could have stood any more Hollywood chat this afternoon. I wouldn't have believed. She said, proceeding as always to color the conversation that anybody except Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper could be such an authority on the film world as is Mrs. Clara Wellbeloved. She knows much more about it than I do, and I'll have been moving in celluloid circles two years, come Lama's Eve. She knows exactly how many times everybody's been divorced and why, how much every picture for the last twenty years has grossed, and how many Warner's brothers there are. She even knows how many times Artie Shaw has been married, which I'll bet he couldn't tell you himself. She asked if I had ever married Artie Shaw, and when I said no, seemed to think I was pulling her leg, or must have done it without noticing. I tried to explain that when a girl goes to Hollywood, she doesn't have to marry Artie Shaw. It's optional. But I don't think I convinced her. A very remarkable old lady, but a bit exhausting after the first hour or two. Did you say you wanted to speak to me about something, Bertie? Yes, I did. Well, why don't you? Because you won't let me get a word in edgewise. Oh, have I been talking? I'm sorry. What's on your mind, my king? Gussie. Finknoddle? Finknoddle is correct. The whitest man I know. The fat-headest man you know. Listen, Corky, I've just been talking to Catsmeat. Did he tell you that he expects shortly to persuade Gertrude Winkworth to elope with him? Yes! She smiled in a steely sort of way, like one of those women in the Old Testament who used to go about driving spikes into people's heads. I'm just waiting for that to happen, she said. 
so that I can get a good laugh out of seeing Esmond's face when he finds out that his Gertrude has gone off with another. Most amusing it will be. Ha ha! She added, That ha ha, so like the expiring quack of a duck dying of a broken heart, told me all I wanted to know. I saw that cat's meat had not erred in his diagnosis of this young shrimp's motives in giving Gussie the old treatment, and I had no option but to slip her the lowdown without further delay. I tapped her on the shoulder and bunged in the word in season. Corky, I said, you're a chump. You've got a completely wrong angle on this haddock. So far from being enamoured of Gertrude Winkworth, I don't suppose he would care except in a distant cousinly way if she choked on a fishbone. You're the lodestar of his life. What? I had it from his own lips. He was a bit pickled at the time, which makes it all the more impressive, because in vino... What's the word? Her eyes had lit up. She gave a quick gulp. He said I was the lodestar of his life? With a still in front of the lodestar. Mark this, he said, helping himself to port, of which he was already nearly full. Though she has given me the brusheroo, she is still the lodestar of my life. Bertie, if you're kidding, I will... Of course I'm not! I hope you're not, because if you are, I shall put the curse of the Peerbrights on you, and it's not at all the sort of curse you will enjoy. Tell me more. I told her more. In fact, I told her all. When I'd finished, she laughed like a hyena, and also, for girls never make sense, let fall a pearly tear or two. Isn't that just the sort of thing he would think up? Bless him, she said, alluding to the hot idea Esmond Haddock had brought back with him from the Bassingstoke cinema. What a woolly lambkin that man is. I'm not sure if woolly lambkin was the right phrase I would have used myself to describe Esmond Haddock, but I let it go, it being no affair of mine. If she elected to regard a fellow with a 46-inch chest and muscles like writhing snakes as a woolly lambkin, that was up to her. My task, having started a good thing, was to push it along. In these circs, I said, you will probably be glad of a word of advice from a knowledgeable man of the world. Catmeat appears to have obtained excellent results on the Gertrude front from pouring out his soul in the form of notes. And if you take my tip, you will do the same. Drop Esmond Haddock a civil line telling him you are aching for his presence, and he will lower the world's racing record round to the vicarage to fold you in his arms. He's only waiting for the green light. She shook her head. No, she said. Why not? We should simply be where we were before. I saw what she was driving at, of course. I know what's in your mind, I said. You're alluding to his civil disobedience in regard to defying his aunts. Well, let me assure you that that little difficulty will very shortly yield to treatment. Listen, Esmond Haddock is singing a hunting song at the concert. Words by his Aunt Charlotte, music by his Aunt Myrtle. You don't dispute that? All correct so far. Well, suppose that hunting song is a smackaroonie. And in a few well-chosen words, I informed her of Jeeves' tenable theory. You get the idea I concluded? The cheers of the multitude frequently act like a powerful drug on these birds with inferiority complexes. Rouse such birds, as for instance by whistling through your fingers and yelling bis bis when they sing hunting songs, and they become changed men. Their morale stiffens, their tails shoot up like rockets, 
they find themselves regarding the tough eggs before whom they have always been accustomed to crawl as less than the dust beneath their chariot wheels. If Esmond Haddock goes with the bang I anticipate, it won't be long before those ants of his will be climbing trees and pulling them up after them whenever he looks squiggle-eyed at them. My eloquence had not been wasted. She started considerably and said something about out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. Going on to explain that gag was not her own, but one of Uncle Sidney's. And in return, I told her that the tenable theory I'd been outlining was not mine, but Jesus's, each giving credit where credit was due. I believe he's right, Bertie. Of course he's right. Jesus always right. It's happened before. Do you know Bingo Little? Just to say hello to. He married some sort of female novelist, didn't he? Rosie M. Banks, author of Mervyn Keene, Clubman, and Only a Factory Girl. And their union was blessed. In due season, a bouncing baby was added to the strength. Keep your eye on that baby, for the plot centers round it. Well, since you last saw Bingo, Mrs. Bingo, by using her substantial pull, secured for him the post of editor of Wee Tots, a journal for the nursery in the home. A very good job in most respects, but with this flaw, that the salary attached to it was not at all what it might have been. His proprietor, P.P. Perkis, being one of those parsimonious birds in whose pocketbooks moths nest and raise large families. It was Bingo's constant endeavour, accordingly, to try to stick old Gaspard the miser for a raise. All clear so far? Yes, I've got it. Week after week he would creep into P.P. Perkis's presence and falter out apologetic sentences beginning with Oh, Mr. Perkis, I wonder if... and Oh, Mr. Perkis, do you think you could possibly... only to have the blighter gaze at him with fishy eyes and talk about the tightness of money and the growing cost of pulp paper. And Bingo would say, Oh, quite, Mr. Perkis, and I see, Mr. Perkis, yes, I see, and creep out again. That's Act One. But mark the sequel. You're right, mark the sequel. Came a day when Bingo's bouncing baby entered a baby contest against some of the warmest competition in South Kensington, scooped in first prize, a handsome all-day sucker, getting kissed in the process by the wife of a cabinet minister and generally fawned upon by all and sundry. The next morning, Bingo, with a strange light on his face, strode into P.P. Perkis's private office without knocking, banged the desk with his fist, and said he wished to see an additional ten fish in his pay envelope from now on. And to suit everybody's convenience, the new arrangement would come into effect on the following Saturday. And when P.P. Perkis started to go into his act, he banged the desk again and said he hadn't come there to argue. Yes or no, Mr. Perkis, he said. And P.P. Perkis, sagging like a wet sock, said, Why, yes, yes, of course, most certainly, Mr. Little adding that he had been on the point of suggesting some such idea himself. Well, I mean, that shows you. And impressed her. No mistaking that. She uttered a meditative golly and stood on one leg, looking like the soul's awakening. And so, I proceeded, we are going to strain every nerve to see that Esmond Haddock's hunting song is the high spot of the evening. Jeeves is to go about the village scattering beers, so as to assemble what is known as a clack, and ensure the thunderous applause. You'll be able to help in that direction, too. Of course I will. My standing in the village is terrific. I have the place in my pocket. I must get after this right away. 
I can't wait. You don't mind me leaving you? Not at all, not at all. Or rather, yes, I jolly well do. Before you go, we've got to get this Gussie thing straight. What Gussie thing? I clicked my tongue. You know perfectly well what Gussie thing. For reasons into which we need not go, you have recently been making Augustus Ficknoddle the plaything of the idle hour. And it has got to stop. I don't have to tell you again what will happen if you continue carrying on as of even date. In our conference at the flat, I made the facts clear to the meanest intelligence. You are fully aware that should the evil spread, should sand be shoved into the gears of the Ficknoddle Bassett romance to such an extent that it ceases to tick over, Bertram Worcester will be faced with the fate that is worse than death. Viz. Marriage. I feel sure that now that you have been reminded of the hideous peril that looms, your good heart will not allow you to go on encouraging the above Ficknoddle, as according to the evidence of five ants you are doing now. Appalled by the thought of poor old Worcester pressing the wedding trousers and packing the trunks for a honeymoon with that ghastly Bassett, you will obey the dictates of your better self and cool him off. She saw my point. You want me to restore Gussie to circulation? Yes, exactly. Switch off my fascination? Release him from my clutches? Yes, right. Why, of course. I'll attend to it immediately. And on these very satisfactory terms we parted. A great weight had been lifted from my mind. Well, I do not know what your experience has been, but mine is that there is very little percentage in having a weight lifted off your mind, because the first thing you know, another, probably a dash sight heavier, is immediately shoved onto it. It would appear to be a game you can't beat. I had scarcely got back to my room, all soothed and relaxed, when in blue cat's meat, and there was that in his mere appearance that chilled my merry mood like a slap in the eye with a wet towel. His face was grave, and his deportment not at all the sprightly deportment of a man who has recently been playing gin rummy with the parlourmaids. Bertie, he said, hold on to something. A very serious situation has arisen. The floor seemed to heave beneath me like a stage C. The mice, which since that latter sequence and the subsequent chat with Corky had been taking a breather, sprang into renewed activity as if starting training for some athletic sports. Oh, my sainted aunt, I moaned. And Catsmeat said I might well say my sainted aunt, because she was the spearhead of the trouble. Here comes the bruise, he said. When I was in the servants' hall a moment ago, Silversmith rolled in. Do you know what he has just been told by the girls higher up? He has been told that your Aunt Agatha is coming here. I don't know when, but in the next day or so. Dame Daphne Winkworth had a letter from her by the afternoon post, and in it she announced her intention of shortly being a pleasant visitor at this ruddy hen coop. So, what now?